Hello and welcome to another Heavy Meta. This the 21st issue. Issue? Do you have issues in podcasts? Oh, we have issues. <laughs> I, I am and remain, have always been, and will continue to be Bryce, uh, one of your hosts. And as always, I'm joined with... Uh, I am Kelly Boyden. And we together are joined today by special guest star... Michael Shepner. Michael, thank you for coming on. Could you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. So I am, I'm a Libra. Um, <laughs> my favorite color is red. I have a two-year-old, right? So I'm like, used to answering this on a little Do you like walks level. on the beach? Yes, I do. I do. Good, um, good. I am an assistant professor of history here at the University of Maine in Farmington. Uh, and I teach classes on um, usually American history topics, um, usually regarding race or legal history. Those are the two areas that I study the most. And I just recently wrote and had published a book with Cambridge University Press, uh, and um, it's sort of the crowning academic achievement so far in my life. I'm pretty excited. It's just Cambridge Yay. University Press. I mean, who are they? Yeah. Yes. You know, like, yeah. They've been around for a little they, while. Are they local? They, Upstarts. They, yeah, they are. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank that's you. Gotta, yeah, that's, what, that's a big deal. What's the name of the book? The name of the book is Moral Contagion, Black Atlantic Sailors, Citizenship and Diplomacy in Antebellum America. So I took the, the standard historian's approach where I tried to uh, use a title that is sort of eye-catching and uh, somewhat opaque and a little mysterious and then put everything out there in the subtitle so everybody knows exactly what's going on. <laughs> right, so, so uh, you have mystery during the what's title that? and it's completely oh, gone. Well, you know, I mean, so people don't read it and then be like, wait a minute, this right. isn't what I thought it was yeah. at all. Yeah, exactly. You don't have, you want a little bit of bait, but you don't want too much switch yeah. and make people right. angry. So, so. I mean, you've, you've given us the subtitle, which in theory means that now I know everything about it, but explain a bit more. Like, what, what, tell us a bit more about it. Yeah, so the idea of moral contagion uh, is premised on uh, a belief amongst antebellum Southerners, uh, so before the Civil War, that free people of color would pose an imminent threat to the slave system. The idea that free people of color, by being free black people entering the South, would instigate amongst the enslaved a desire to be free. And so to prevent that sort of process from happening. I can't have that happening. Can't have yeah. that happening, right? You don't want to uh, submarine your social system, right? <laughs> um, so white Southerners uh, increasingly passed laws starting in 1822 and going all the way up to the Civil War, passed laws that prevented free people of color from entering their states, their respective jurisdictions. So the idea was um, if we can prevent um, free people of color from entering our state, we can, in essence, codify racial peace. Because there's no way the slaves would ever figure out, wait a minute, yeah. maybe I shouldn't be a slave. Right, As yeah. long as they don't see anyone. Sure. Yeah. It never would have occurred to them. So right. politicians, they're, they're, they're pretty yeah. uniform then, now, they continue to do stupid things. Yeah, and so I, I do talk about how this process, this logic of moral contagion, um, is not just something that inhabits the 19th century mindset. This is something that stretches from deep into the colonial period all the way up till, you know, yeah. right now. <laughs> uh, but this idea that, that somebody from outside is the genesis or the catalyst for social discontent, um, it, it sort of, it, it ignores, it glosses over internal sort of social divisions, right? And, and as long as you can project the origins of, of danger or, you know, potential social unrest onto somebody who's out there, it, uh, it 
conveys this idea that everything is fine here. If we can just, if we had the political will to right. bar the if gates, we keep right. the other away from us. Right, everything will be fine, be fine here, and, it, and it's it's myth making, right? It creates a consensus, a domestic consensus that never really exists, right? But you have to have that as a sort of a, a necessary ingredient to um, to other eyes to, mm. to make that sort of discontentment somewhere else. And so, so the book is uh, about moral contagion, about this process. But for me, I actually use that as a window to, to look at things like citizenship and federalism and, and how laws um, are contested in the antebellum period and the pivotal role that, that people of color play in um, making law change mm. and changing sort of legal conceptions about what the state can actually do. So what was their big plan? I mean, like, so free people of color can't come here. Yeah. And if they did, like, they became slaves? I mean, they would, like, no, they would go to jail first. So, so it depends on the state. So, so um, you don't have a whole, outside of maybe Louisiana and New Orleans, you don't have a whole lot of free people of color that are looking to move into the slave south. Right. Um, so, so, Smart. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so you don't have, this isn't a huge sort of issue, except for the fact that all of these statutes apply to people working in the maritime industry as well. And that is a significant number of people. Um, so I, I went through and, and tried to tabulate the best I could the total number of arrests of free black sailors and maritime workers, uh, and, and definitely well over 20,000. Um, and so when a vessel would come in from anywhere um, in the Atlantic world, so if, whether it's from the British West Indies or from France or from the northern United States, if they would enter Charleston or Savannah or New Orleans, when their vessel came into harbor, you would have local law enforcement go on board, identify... I don't, it's still sort of interesting to me how they identify who's black and who's not, which mm -hmm. is a, a part of the story too. Mm -hmm. And they would literally take those people to jail and, it, and then those people would have to stay in jail until their vessel would leave harbor. And at that point, the captain would pay, would get his bond back. He had to pay a bond to, for good behavior of, their, of, the, of the sailors while they're in, while they're in jail. And then this, the captain would get his bond back and the men would be returned to their vessel and then they could then leave. Um, there are plenty of instances in which captains just leave. Um, they don't post the bond, they just take off. Uh, in some ways, that makes monetary sense. You don't have to pay your sailors. Um, uh, and there were some statutes uh, that, that uh, if there were any sort of delinquencies in the administration of the law, uh, that sailors could be in, uh, enslaved. And so I have two, two or three stories of free black sailors who end up slaves um, because of this process. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, that's how the law worked. Most of the statutes required imprisonment while the, boat, the boats were in harbor. Um, over time, some of the states modify it, liberalize their laws to allow black sailors to remain on board their vessels. Whoa! And, which is which, on the one hand, right, and this is where I, a lot of the book talks about the, the British government, the British Foreign Office, uh, and the British diplomats have been fighting against these laws for a quarter of a century. So when southern states start liberalizing their laws, you know, British diplomats are shaking each other's hands. Hey, we've we've overcome this sort of affront to the Union Jack. Um, and one of the claims I make in the book is that, yeah, this was sort of a, a diplomatic coup, fantastic for you, but you've sacrificed equality here. You, you've basically said that, that, you know, despite the fact that treaties are supposed to protect all British subjects when they come to the United States, you've basically told the U.S. South, you can discriminate against black British people all you want as long as you don't throw them in jail, right? So as long as you don't throw them in jail, it's okay. And so, there, you know, I understand that politics is the art of the, you know, achieving the possible. But at the same time, I think there was a, a major sort of concession by the British state to, to allow the British or the southern states to do these sorts of things. Wow. Yeah. I had no idea. I had no idea either. It's disgusting. 
Um, so what made you first be interested in this? I mean, is, is this what you've been like doing work on all along or like? Yeah, so, you know, in the, I think on the first page of the acknowledgements, I said that I'd been in a relationship with this project for like 12 years. Wow. <laughs> which with the exception of like my immediate family, that is the longest relationship I've ever had, mm-hmm. um, including my, my, my wife, <laughs> which is sort of, uh, sort of strange. Um, but yeah, so when I first started out, I started out the way that most, the, this, the book came out of the dissertation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so as a, uh, a sort of young, you know, still green graduate student, when you look for a dissertation topic, you just want something that somebody, that, that a group of scholars have not torn apart already. Right. Uh, and the last real major work on these laws against black sailors was published like in the 1930s. Really? Yeah. At the time it was probably, thank goodness for those laws, they yeah. kept, you know. Oh no, it was very different, right? It was actually the, the sort of, it was looking at sort of British diplomatic approaches. So it wasn't even really about the perspective of the sailors. It was just all just about sort of how British consuls in these local states, huh. these local areas sort of participated in this whole process. So there wasn't a whole lot written out there and when you're a graduate student and you find something that isn't written a whole lot about mm-hmm. uh, I knew I wanted to, to write on something regarding race and mobility and migration because those are things that sort of interested me mm-hmm. um, it sort of fell into my lap and, and it worked so I need happy endings so I mean in, in the <laughs> well you know <laughs> well uh, sorry <laughs> in, in the in the long in the history of this did, did it did the arc you know, bend towards justice eventually? Did did any, did citizenship laws change? Did, did anything good eventually come out of yeah. what happened to these people? Yeah, and you know, I love that phrase, the arc of justice bending. I think people bend it, um, but um, unlike a famous 19th century statesman, revolutions do go backwards, right? Mm-hmm. So, so yes, after the Civil War is over, some of the ideas surrounding American citizenship changed pretty dramatically with the 14th Amendment. Um, and, and one of the claims of the book is that a lot of these African-American sailors, when they sail into southern port cities and they're arrested, they say, you can't do this to me. I'm an American citizen. American citizens have rights, including the right to travel. But national citizenship didn't really have that connotation for most white Americans. At the time, they never talked about national citizenship having rights. Uh, and and so in some ways this is uh, for even white citizens you're saying well, not to mention black citizens well, for anybody because yeah. most people's rights were anchored into local conceptions of rights or state given rights so like the franchise right the, the right to vote that is state mm. determined um, the right to education right property rights those are all largely dealt with through state courts and so state citizenship had a little bit of a meaning but nobody really talks about national citizenship rights and and one of the claims that I make is that if you move from point A to point B and your legal rights don't change, you don't contest any, there's nothing to contest. But if you're a Northern African American and you're used to, used to going into Boston or to Providence when your ship goes there, mm-hmm. and then you go to Charleston and somebody tells you you can't do that, um, then you sort of explain why that's not the case. And, and, and so in this instance, depriving somebody of liberty was sort of the impetus behind claims of national citizenship. Mm-hmm. During the, before the Civil War, that idea of citizenship was um, I think strongly advocated by African-Americans, but it wasn't something that was necess- necessarily largely heralded by, by many others. After the Civil War is over, the 14th Amendment sort of um, lays down national citizenship as some, something that exists, it's mm-hmm. birthright. If you're mm-hmm. born here, you're a citizen of the United States. And it also extends privileges and immunities of citizens across the country. So in some ways, they, uh, the, the people that make the 14th Amendment are using ideas that were couched by black sailors as they entered the United States South. Of course, the 14th Amendment in 1868 
uh, ostensibly creates equality and due process yeah. and, right. and equal protection of the laws, and, and certainly that's the case for a little while, but in the same way that um, black sailors claim to be citizens of the United States and have the right to travel, after the 14th Amendment, post-war, African-Americans claim to have the right to vote and claim to have the right to yes. do certain things. And, of course, throughout most of the South, um, those constitutional guarantees were completely ignored. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking for a, a happy ending, well, you know. Um, you know, I hope <laughs> you live a nice, long life. <laughs> yeah. no, we're yeah. halfway through the I was just more looking for, you know, a, a, a tiny little silver lining that, that might have, you know, yeah, uh, lots of silver linings, um, uh, lots of uh, of short term victories, but um, a lot of a lot of backtracking yeah. too, and a lot of uh, you know history. I don't think there are very many historians that say the history repeats itself, yeah. but there are echoes from the from the antebellum period into the postbellum period yeah. regarding citizenship and its inability to protect people when political arrangements are, are aligned against you, and, mm-hmm. and that's sort of echoes through time. So as you were writing this and as you were researching this, do you have any favorite research experiences like like that, you know, you were hoping to find something and then like you managed to pull one off and really find it? Like, does that ever happen to you as a historian? Yeah, yeah. On occasion, there's these sort of archival finds that right. you don't expect to hit. Um, <laughs> at least early on, most of, the, most of the stories were not good ones where I would mm-hmm. go to a county courthouse hoping to find extensive arrest records and then finding out that those extensive arrest records don't exist. Or that the um, the court records for a lot of these sort of lo- local small jail justice of the peace courts never existed, um, or were destroyed or, or lost at some point. So there were a lot more of those sorts <laughs> of things. Um, but on occasion, I would I would stumble across um, letters in the British uh, British archives from um, consuls in the uh, living in the United States, and and usually consular jobs are. I hope there are no consuls listening right now. Right, <laughs> um, fairly mundane. A lot yeah. of a lot of filling out forms and, and you know tabulating uh, weight totals and, and duties collected and things like that. But as you go through these consular letters, you would find these amazing stories of black British sailors who left no records of the, of their own, and yet you get sort of this incredible story about what happens to them when they mm. when they go into confinement. And it's not just sitting in jail and, and, and sort of sitting in an detainment facility or something like that. It's being beaten, uh, sexual mm-hmm. assault, things like that. And so while I wouldn't necessarily call those sort of things where I got excited about, it was, exci- it was exciting from a historian's point of view to, to mm-hmm. find stories that people had just not seen before. Right. And to be able to tell those stories and get those stories out there, I think is, it, it does good work, even though I wouldn't necessarily say I was excited to find them. So how much of your research involved you sitting in front of a computer and looking at archives online, and how much involved you traveling to different places and like Indiana Jonesing it. <laughs> oh, you know what? One of the reasons I went into well, I, and I considered it a history and anthropology was I was a huge I was a huge Indiana Jones fan, <laughs> um, but nothing nearly that exciting. Um, but uh, it was a, a combination of both. Um, so there are a lot of digitized sources, especially in terms of appellate court decisions um, in the United States, in terms of. Um, legislative journals and things like that where, where you have people in positions of political power arguing about certain topics. And so I would sit in my computer for, for that sort of thing. Um, but most of the, the, the nitty-gritty stories came from sitting in the British Foreign Office uh, archives over in Kew, England, mm-hmm. and, and going through those letters. Um, that was probably the, the highlight right, uh, of, of the research. But nothing, I mean, I was not you know, 
risking my life. <laughs> oh, come on. Running away from, from fallen boulders or from, you know. Snakes. Yeah, and, or, or Nazis shooting at me. Nothing, nothing quite that, that exciting. Yeah, that was more of 1940s sort of thing, you know. Yeah. Um, do you have anything, Kelly? Um, thanks for asking. Cause, cause <laughs> I just I want to make sure to, to spread things around. Um, what, what, so how do you think this book will be used? Will this be used like in classrooms? Will this be used by other scholars? Will this like be used, everyone's going to read it. Everyone, you know, like it'll be on the New York Times bestseller list. Like, how do you, like, what, what, what life will your book have? So I, when I was thinking about audience for the book, I was thinking about audience from the perspective of um, a young academic who felt very lucky to be able to get into the academy itself. I mean, I don't think it's um, breaking news to talk about the problems facing higher ed and the, and the hiring issues uh, in history and other humanities and social science um, fields. So I felt very lucky. And, and, and so when I was thinking about writing for audience, I was mostly thinking about writing for a university press to get tenure. Um, you know, I, I, yes, I had a big story to tell, but I was really hoping to address this issue among scholars. Um, I think that's the way the dissertation came out. I think the book is uh, much more widely accessible than that, uh, but I don't anticipate somebody, you know, a, a random 17-year-old picking the book up and, and think this is riveting reading. Um, but I think it is widely applicable. I think people can pick it up and, and, can, and can get it. There are some chapters that I think go into a little bit more diplomatic minutia than most people today would, would care about. Um, but you know, if, if somebody were to pick up the introduction or the epilogue and read it, they would think, oh, this is important. I should probably, I should probably know about this. So it's not like wall of text, like inaccessible, like someone like I could pick it up. Well, I, you know, granted I am a librarian, <laughs> so I'm to hope I could read it, but like, um, you know, my brother could pick it up and, and be like, oh, this is, in, you know, like. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think people that have an interest in in race relations, people that have an interest in law or legal history or citizenship. If you have any of those interests already, then the book will speak to you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you don't, then I don't know if it'll speak to you very much, right? But I, but I think, you know, somebody, an educated adult could pick this up and find use out of it. I don't think it's gonna be assigned in high schools. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think the, the, the language might be a little, uh, uh, might be somewhat inaccessible for you know a first year college student or second year college student, but I think senior history majors uh, and people you know with a with a college degree can pick this up and, and get a lot of use out of it. The students in your classes now, I know that you deal a lot in your classes with these issues of race and and equality. And do your students draw parallels between what was going on then and and the world that they live in now? Um, so I try to make it as painfully obvious as possible without doing it myself. Yes. Um, and, and many of them sort of get it. And, and in some of the history classes I teach, it's a little bit easier. Like, so right now I'm teaching a class that goes basically from 1865 up until as far as I can get to the present. And as we get closer and closer <laughs> to like post-World War II, when I start talking about things like, you know, things that are happening with the Great Society or LBJ's presidency, mm -hmm they start realizing, oh, right? It's a lot harder to force them to draw conclusions when we go further and further back. And in some ways, it's a blessing. In some ways, it's a curse, right? Because I want them to think about how the, the past informs the present. Right. But sometimes it's nice to get them out of their echo chambers in the present and allow them to think about the past in ways that they don't have to think about, oh, well, how does this actually fit into my worldview mm -hmm. now? And in some ways, it's a, 
it's more of an open book and, and you're working with a cleaner slate. Um, so, so I think there's benefits to, to, to both sides, but I really try to get them to think about um, when we talk about, and I use some of the sources from the book uh, in my class when we talk about moral contagion, about you know, what should be the criteria with which America or its you know, subsidiary jurisdictions, mm-hmm. what, what's the criteria for, for regulating borders? Uh, the idea is that you should be thinking about how this might apply. Do the, right. uh, how, do the, does the logic, does the rationale then make sense now? Do we see similarities? Do we see differences? If the state did not have the ability then, should they have the ability now? Um, and, and some students sort of take the bait and, and start thinking about it, and, and others um, just want to know how to get a, a, you know, a C and get through the class, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so so it's, a, you know, it's, it's a mixed bag, but yeah, I try to, I try to lead them to, to see the, the, the correlations, and, and sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. So it's, the book is already published? It's already published. It's already it's, published. It's you already can published. get it on Amazon? You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on the Cambridge University website. It's on Goodreads. It's probably other places, although I haven't found it yet. <laughs> um, Barnes it's Noble, everywhere. you know. Well, we've maybe. had some professors who sell the book from under their bed. So, you know, if you... I'm, I might be there eventually. Yeah. I might be there eventually. <laughs> so here's the dreaded next question. What are you going to do next? You know, I've actually, because it's been, it's been a long process getting this book from sort of dissertation to book that I've had a lot of offshoots that have come out of it, that things that I couldn't really follow because I was still working on this one project. Yeah. And so I have a list of about as long as my arm um, about possible next projects. Mm. Um, but actually I just sent an email out today um, to a potential publisher about an idea for a book geared much more to a wider audience mm. um, and, and through a t- trade press. And it's really looking at this concept of, of moral contagion and outside agitation. And, and instead of focusing just on sort of black sailors in the antebellum South, looking at that logic of externalization of danger and, and what that does to, to people inside a given jurisdiction, looking at that across a long time period. So, so making outside agitation and the logic of moral contagion, not just a story in the antebellum South, but, but an American story going from early colonial period all the way up till um, as close as I can get to the present. Without, without, seeming, <laughs> without seeming overtly uh, polemical. So, I mean, like, cause just hit me, like, Trump's famous quote, you know, about the Mexicans coming across the border, rapists, and, you know, mm-hmm. some of them are nice people, I'm sure, but, I mean, that's essentially, that's moral contagion, what he was arguing Yeah, there, right? to a I mean, certain like, extent, except that it's, you don't, you can't catch being a, like, ra- if, if somebody's a rapist and they enter your community, the, oh, it's not other like, people don't become rapists. So too. moral contagion specifically is like, if they come here, we're all going to become more like them. Yeah, so I think a much more apt um, analogy would be we don't want um, the, the logic that if, if more and more um, Muslims come to the United States, then we're going to have Sharia law. Sharia law. Uh, and and yeah. it might convince others to that, you know, or you might get converts amongst the youngsters or something like that. Right. This idea that, that there are ideologies that are inherently anti-American, and if those people come here, they will undermine America, um, okay. and so and so that obviously to, to have that you have to have an idea about what America is already, and you have to imagine that that America thinks the same way to have this sort of oppositional right. sort of notion. So so um, you know the the they are rapists is probably not going to work, but if they are um, drug peddlers, which is another part of this, right? right? If there's somebody who are you know they're smuggling heroin and you know marijuana across the border. Although I don't think marijuana is illegal anymore, sort of. Where you are, sort of, kind of. Federally, I think no. But anyway, right. But it, but if you can um, 
you know, proliferate drug use and reliance on, on drugs, and, and in some ways that would be more contagious. Or sort of basically saying people with loose morals are coming into our country and they're going to all just... Loose morals or anti-American thoughts and ideas. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And of course those two things tend to, in the, in the logical moral contagion, those two things overlap. And, and one of the pernicious side effects of this, um, of this process is that if you are contaminated with moral contagion, even if you're from here, you're unpatriotic, right? I mean, if you if you harbor, um, you know, to to think about it from the 1920s, right? We have to keep communist and socialist out of the United States, lest European ideals corrupt the United States. But if you were a socialist in the 1920s and you were from Milwaukee, you were not just you know dangerous. You were not you were unpatriotic by being a socialist. Right? You were un-American even though you were born in Milwaukee, which doesn't seem to make But that's the, that's the logic of moral contagion. Not only are you, you, know, you dangerous, but you've obviously been corrupted by foreign influence, which means your loyalties lie somewhere else, not here. Hmm. So we've always been good at othering. It's, it's yeah, yeah. Basically but, it. but it moves the borders from the outside <laughs> of the country to inside our own communities, right? Okay. Have you been infected by somebody who has foreign ideals? If you have, are you really one of us anymore, hmm. right? Or have you sort of left that behind? But again, that has to—you have to have an us that's uniform, and there has to be consensus. And of course, that consensus never has existed. Well, you don't need—you don't need consensus. You just need people to think there is. Right. Well, that's that's what right. I mean. Right. Because enough of you have to—you have to be able to convince enough of you yeah. that you you're all on the same team. Right. To exactly. say now you're not on our team anymore. Yeah. In a sense, it's 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 myth making. Right. Right. It's myth making. So we're almost out of time. I was wondering, as a history professor, is there anything you do that like is would be surprising to people. Like we've had we we've had geography professors in here before and like when we find out they do things that I mean you, you figure it's all just maps, right? Just maps. <laughs> but it's not. So I mean history professor, I think you know most people would assume you're just working with books all the time. Is is that pretty much what it is? Or is there ever, ever you're like, no, history professor is more, it's this. Anything? Oh man. You know, you can't put me up against the geographers. And you, can't yeah, put, and you can't put me up. You can't put me so against unfair, the business professors right? too, right? I mean, <laughs> right. I don't know if you guys know Clyde over in social science and business. That guy, we you know, he's, he's, we've not had him on. We gotta get, we gotta get, we gotta get Clyde. Yeah. Well, he's like he's like an adrenaline sports junkie, right? <laughs> and, and, and I know that there's some of the geographers are are you know have a much funner social life. No, um, I I largely deal with books. Um, one of the things I do enjoy is is getting hands on things that that have been dug away somewhere and left behind and largely forgotten, um, and and finding it and, and finding value in it. Um, and that might sound sort of boring and historical, um, and and maybe it is to a lot of people. But um, to me, that's that's the thrill. You know, picking up a book that somebody hasn't opened in a hundred years, and finding out that it's a freaking shame that somebody has not picked this up and looked at these stories from. And I think, I mean, it's always just interesting. Well, again, I'm a librarian, so, you know, I... You're, on, you're, you're on the good team. Yeah, you're on the right, good team. right? <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, like, the number of times that people stumble across stuff in archives uh, that people just forgot were there. Yeah. And, like, you can't find it if you don't go in there. Someone needs to go in there. And I think it's a pretty cool thing to, you know, to be able to go in and, like, just explore and see what you find out. Yeah. You know, so yeah, um, I, Google doesn't have all the answers. No, especially when you get anything historical. Like yeah. if you get past like 1970, like before. I mean, good ancient. Luck. You mean ancient history? Yeah, ancient, yeah. ancient. I mean, yeah. you know. Anyway, we really appreciate you coming on. 
Uh, the book title again is Moral Contagion. And what's the subtitle? The sub, uh, the... All right, I'll see if I can do it all in one breath. Okay. <laughs> Black Atlantic Sailors, Citizenship and Diplomacy in Antebellum America. Okay. He did it. He did. I did it. Impressive. <laughs> you passed. Thanks. So check it out. Um, is it Devaney's? Any, any idea? Like, it will be. I don't think it's there yet. Literally, the, it just hit the U.S. market like 10 days ago or 8 days ago. Wow. So a lot of Super the... Super freshy lot, fresh. Yeah, it's, it's, it still smells new. Right? <laughs> so new book smell. Right. Well, best, best of luck with it. And uh, thanks again. Thanks, Michael. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.